Guardian Unlimited. Guardian Unlimited. The Rugby World Cup Show. Sponsored by Magnus. Time to play. Go to magnuscider.com. Hello, welcome to Guardian Unlimited's Rugby World Cup show for another session. I'm Ian Payne and in today's podcast we're going to be talking about the games coming up this weekend and of course that means we'll be talking about Andy Farrell at fly half. He hasn't played half an hour in his new sport in that position and yet he's playing against South Africa in the World Cup. Uh, Are we finally going to see Farrell's much-talked-about genius on a rugby union pitch? Joel Stransky will talk to us about the Springboks. Uh, Wales, what hopes have they got against the Wallabies? And from the blogs, the Hucker, that's what New Zealand do. What will England do before games? What about Morris dancing, suggests some of our bloggers. If you want to join in the debate, blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport and get your views on the Rugby World Cup show. Our talented panel for this week's preview... Ah, Kevin Mitchell, who's in Paris on the phone. He's the chief sports writer for The Observer. With me here in London in the studio, The Guardian's deputy sports editor, Ian Pryor. And also with us, the voice of our minute-by-minute match reports here at The Guardian on The Guardian Unlimited site, another Irishman, Mr Paul Doyle. We'll speak to all of those in a moment. But first, I'm delighted to uh, introduce live from a tour bus going round the Champs-Élysées, seeing all the sights of Paris Joel Stransky, World Cup winning fly half for South Africa. That's not him talking. That, I believe, is the uh, tour bus operator, is it? Yeah, and it is. Yep, we're on the bus here with uh, all the visa gang from South Africa, all the prize winners, having a little tour of Paris. It's been fantastic. Where exactly are you at the moment and what have you seen? We, uh, well, this morning we, we went on, the, on a boat down the Seine River. Um, we, went, we stopped at Notre Dame, we stopped at the Eiffel Tower, and we're now coming down the Champs-Élysées, uh, looking at all the, all the shops, I think. I think all the ladies are drooling here to get out and go shopping. <laughs> Have you learned anything about Paris that you didn't know? Can you tell us a nugget? Well, I think it was, uh, what I didn't know was certain of the elements around Notre Dame and some of the uh, statues and the culture and um, some of the lessons learned in the history of Notre Dame. I think that was the big lesson this morning. Right, let's talk about lessons and rugby union. You know all about winning World Cups. Let me ask you, first of all, with the big game, as far as the pool situation is concerned, looming uh, with England tomorrow, are South Africa good enough, A, to win that game, and B, to maybe go all the way and win the World Cup itself, do you think, Joel? I have no doubt that South Africa are good enough to win the game tomorrow, and I'm pretty sure that they can go all the way. Will they go all the way? That's a big question. But starting with tomorrow night, England seem to uh, get sixes and sevens at the moment, really. The captain's suspended. Um, no fly. Farrell's going to play at 10 in a position he's unfamiliar. Um, difficult, difficult times for England. So I don't think I've lost Goldberger, but I think we're, we're certainly the more settled team. We're the more organised team. And uh, I, to be honest, as much as I'd love to say it's going to be a, a real tight one to call, I, I can't see South Africa losing. Were you very pleased with the way that South Africa um, demolished Samoa in that first match? I thought the Springboks were fantastic. They absorbed a lot of physical pressure early. They, uh, they, they dealt with the physicality of the Samoans really well. And then in the second half, they carried on and stuck to their guns. Um, and to score a whole host of tries and win by 50 against that Samoan, Samoan team is a great performance. What's the secret to winning a World Cup, if you were to analyse it? You've done it. What's the secret? Well, I think the, the key is to take each game one at a time. Make sure you you win the game you want to win and set little goals within each game. Um, I think Samoa would be probably the ideal example. It's a, it's a game South Africa would have expected to win. 
they would have known that the Simones would, would be very physical. They'd have to score the tries. And I think if you set little goals within each game, ultimately the result looks after itself. And now, with England ahead of us, I, I think they'll be pretty similar to South Africa. A little bit of probably more so with backs against the wall. You've got to go out and do the little things right, be very accurate. And I think ultimately, if you, if you just continue thinking along those little lines, game at a time, the end of the road, you sort of stand up there and you achieve success. All right, just stay there for a second, Joel. I just want to get an English perspective on tomorrow's game between okay. England and South Africa, and then we'll come back to you, and then I promise you we'll let you get back to you no, no <laughs> to problem. the tour bus and the shopping for no, the no, girls. No, no, I've seen all that before, don't worry. Good man. Kevin Mitchell joins us. He's also in Paris, chief sports writer for The Observer. Kevin, what, what are we to say about the, the England preparation and build-up for A, the World Cup, and B, this particular match? Well, I was with them yesterday, along with the rest of the uh, British media, uh, out at their uh, palatial headquarters in Marseille. And as much as they are trying to put a very brave face on it and they can't really do anything else, there is a, a sense of, not exactly foreboding, but confusion perhaps. I mean, this is far from an ideal preparation, going into a game like this against South Africa, who are in absolutely cracking form. I think Farrell will will surprise people. I think do you? A lot. Yeah, I do. I Why? Think play, well, he's he's a, a very gnarled old campaigner. He's been at the, the coal face of uh, top class rugby in in both codes. I mean, admittedly, not very long in rugby union, but he knows what to do. And he's and played talk- he's played fly half for twenty minutes. I know, I know. This exactly. is a World Cup against South Africa. Exactly, which I think should bring the best out in him. Uh, I think uh, the great players rise to the occasion. Um, he's going to find it tough, but then in, uh, anyone would have done in this match, be it Barkley, uh, Jono, anyway, it doesn't really matter who it was, uh, Toby Flood. I mean, this is a very, very tough game. But let, let me just bring in Joel here, because obviously he's the perfect person to speak about being fly half. It's, it's the key position, isn't it, Joel? And it's the one that the Springboks will target, particularly with a man who's hardly played there. You know, I must say, he is a wonderful player, Farrell. He's, he's, and, and as it was mentioned, he's got loads and loads of experience at the highest level. He's one guy you would turn around and say, when it comes down to the pressure, Cauldron, he'll deal well with the pressure. The thing with flower play, particularly in a new code of rugby, there's so many little nuances and, and, and little ins and outs that takes years to learn. And experience uh, playing there is a key factor, and he's going to be lacking that. He'll be hard, he'll... He'll attack the game line, he'll defend like a Trojan. But one or two of those little areas might be the areas of concern. And what about the actual kicking duties, Joel? You know all about that. You kicked all the points in your win over New Zealand in uh, 1995 at Ellers Park in the final. What is the pressure going to be like on Andy Farrell? Uh, The pressure will be there, but I think he'll just go out and kick. And He's a great rugby player. He's a great footballer. He's got tremendous, tremendous skill and and talent. And he's a good kicker of the ball. I don't think think we'll look at it and go, well, the pressure's got to I think it'll be more about the general play of the England team. Um, I don't think he is the key and an absolute decisive factor of this game. OK, what, what's your prediction for... Give us a vague ballpark figure for the score, Joel. I think South Africa will win by maybe 15 to 18 points. I think they'll be comfortable. Wonderful. OK, enjoy the game and, and more particularly, enjoy the trip. <laughs> Super. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for sparing the time, Joel. No problem. You guys take care, eh? Um, just a quick word from uh, Kevin before we bring in our two studio guests here in London. Kevin, what do you think the, the margin will be, or do you think England can actually win tomorrow? Well, anything's possible. I, I, I think South Africa will win. I saw them on Sunday, and that they, uh, as Joel was saying, that they were fantastic in absorbing the 
the pressure of the Samoans. And then in, in the second half, they just they won every line out their own, and, and the Samoans just about hardly lost hardly lost one. Uh, I think they'll win by about 10 points or so. But, you know, it wouldn't surprise me, because England looks so poor against uh, the Americans, that now when, it, when they're up against it, they, they will lift their game at least 20%, I would have thought. They have to, just to stay in contention. And if they do that, they'll get closer. I, I don't think they'll win, to be honest with you. I, I think the South Africa are, are in an absolute zone at the moment, as they say. But I think this could be a bit closer than people think. All right. Um, I'm delighted to say we're also uh, joined here in London in the studio by The Guardian's Deputy Sports Editor, Ian Pryor, and the voice of our minute-by-minute match reports on the Guardian Unlimited site, Mr Paul Doyle. Uh, Both Irish looking forward to uh, Ireland's slaughter of Georgia this weekend, boys, yes? God, I'd take a five-point win at this point. Would you? Yeah, after that in a minute. You as gloomy as us? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean... Ireland have been getting such a hard time at home this week, if, you, if, if you've been reading the Irish papers, which, fair enough, not everyone has. Um, it's, it's rare to see such an outpouring of vitriol against a team and a coach. Where's it gone? Because 18 months ago, they were, if not the best in the world, in the, certainly in the top three, weren't they? Absolutely they were, and maybe even better than that, but it's, it's, an, it's an absolute mystery. It's exactly the same team, exactly the same players, and they just seem to be completely off the boil as regards their form. What do you think? Yeah, they looked surprising for a team that's played together for so long. They looked surprisingly clueless. They, I mean, in the back row, there was no variety, no imagination. With the honourable exception of Brian O'Driscoll's first try, the little chip and chase over, which is something that they singularly failed to do during the Six Nations whenever there was uh, in-your-face defence from opponents. But apart from that, they were just very, very flat. And, I mean, the manager has to take some of the blame for that. Right. We've got um, lots of interesting blogs on this and other subjects. If you want to join in, by the way, if you want to join in the debate, we've had loads of really interesting thoughts from you and all your questions. Thanks for all of you who've joined in. If you go to blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport, you can get your views on the uh, Rugby World Cup show. Blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport. Here's one on that very subject, which comes from Chuck Walrus. Nobody has a normal name on blogs. Uh, who says, Ireland against Namibia. There is absolutely no way that you can spin it. I was gutted. Four minutes in, I thought, here we go. Four minutes to go. I was in shock. Near full strength, Ireland team had failed so miserably to put up just about 30 points on the lowest ranked team in the Rugby World Cup. Full credit to Namibia for showing up. It's a wake-up call for the Irish. Is it a wake-up call or are Ireland not as good as we perhaps think? I think we'll see over the next couple of weeks. You know, I mean, you, you would expect Ireland to beat Georgia regardless. Um, you know, Argentina did struggle against them the other night for a period before pulling away. Um, but it's all about the performance now for Ireland and it's all about racking up a decent score against them. Um, there's been a theory around this World Cup that the smaller teams have come on a lot, have developed a lot, um, which we saw you know, in the England-US game, to a lesser extent maybe the Scotland-Portugal game. But that t- theory pretty much falls apart when you, when you look at what New Zealand did to Italy. And Italy are, are not a minnow, they're a full proper Absolutely. professional team. Yeah. You look at what Australia did to Japan, you know, it, it's not that the smaller teams have got that much better, it's just that the Northern Hemisphere teams are struggling badly. Right, let's uh, take some more of your blogs. Here's one, this is a good subject, Hardcore Prawn says, uh, in amongst all the hoo-ha about their capitulation to New Zealand, I've been surprised to see that there's been very little dialogue concerning the Italians' behaviour while the All Blacks were performing the haka. Did I imagine it, or did they really gather in a huddle and ignore the Kiwis? Kevin, this has been a, a much talked about part of not just the Rugby World Cup, but rugby in general, the Haka and all the various South Pacific Islands 
playing their own version of the haka. Is it something mm. that you encourage? I mean, there was that big debate yeah, about the haka drawing the finger across the throat, wasn't there, at one point, saying that you can't really change it to that. Yeah, well, it's all a cultural divide. It's, it's, it's part of their upbringing, perhaps, that other people don't understand fully. I mean, a lot of it's symbolic. I, I love it. I think it's, it adds to the, the colour of the carnival of rugby. And um, I mean, people have handled it in various ways. Uh, the Irish famously sort of walked, marched up to them years ago. David Campisi used to wander around at fullback, you know, picking his teeth. Um, which is sort of a, a self-conscious disregarding of it. I mean, he was very, very conscious of it, in fact. Um, I think most players um, accept it for what it is. Is it, is it disrespectful to ignore it? Well, oh... I it's a challenge, isn't it? It, I don't know that it matters much. You know, if, if they want to be disrespected by it, that's uh, the All Black. That's up to them. I mean, some of them are going to be a humourless lot, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, they can. I mean, some of my best friends, etc. But uh, you know, if they're offended by it, so be it. I, I think if you if you want to respect it, that's fine. I, I don't think it's a huge issue. It would be interesting if. Um, if, say, we tried uh, some alternatives ourselves to see how they'd respond. Ah, I'm glad you made that point. This is a blog from uh, our old friend Andy in Brum, who's got some ideas for alternative hackers. I don't know if you boys want to have a think about what your prospective countries would do. Uh, he says, the England team would chat about the weather, wave hankies in the air and attach bells to their ankles before moaning about how they invented the game and gave it to the world, but no one appreciates them. The Americans will not attend until almost full time. In future years, <laughs> they will amend the records to show that they were, in fact, the most important team in the tournament and Hollywood will make a blockbuster film called Saving Flanker Ryan and the Australians will have a barbecue on their side of the field and invite the opposition over before the game. The food and alcohol will be in abundance and by the start of the game no one will remember what they came to the stadium for. After some streaking, the singing of dirty songs and the occasional chunder, everyone will go home thoroughly convinced it was a bloody good night. For Ireland, they're all lining up with Guinness and Magnus Cider. <laughs> yeah, and complaining about the weather while doing so, and you know, staring contests over pints of Republic sport. Yeah, the, the, the Welsh could have an argument. <laughs> we do uh, encourage your blogs on any subject, particularly if you could think of uh, alternative hackers for the various countries. As I say before, you can get in touch with us by going to blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport. We should mention, obviously, you, you've mentioned their. Uh, Wales, Kevin. We should mention that Wales have got a very important game coming up up against the Barbecue Kings of Australia uh, but this one is going to be in Cardiff. Does it give them any more of an advantage? Well, yeah, it does actually. Um, the notion that this is uh, the uh, Rugby World Cup in France is obviously a charade in a way when you're playing, two, you're playing games in Wales and Scotland. Uh, I think, yeah, I think it's worth 10 points or so to, to Wales at that perhaps. I mean, in the, in the atmosphere, the cauldron of the Millennium Stadium. Um, I think Australia will win it because I think they're playing the quality rugby. But you just never know. I mean, some heroic things have happened uh, for the Welsh in that, in that uh, stadium. And it, it could be the case on Saturday as well. There's a certain very high profile rugby coach of my acquaintance who I know who's put two grand on that game on Australia to beat Wales. Sure, in the knowledge that it was being played in Marseille. He's a bit worried, <laughs> he's a bit worried now. <laughs> I'm not surprised he's, uh, he's worried. What about to, talking of France? Another disastrous evening for the French this week when we talk about sport. They lost in Paris to Scotland at football. Um, the next one that um, France have got to uh, worry about is uh, Namibia. On Sunday, uh, all sorts of changes in the French pack. But Paul, do you think that the French are actually good enough to win this World Cup? 
Um, no, I don't. Uh, I think it will be um, one of the Southern Hemisphere teams, probably Australia, I think. Um, Why but I think they're certainly good enough. Um, good, I'm just going to go with the cliche and say the All Blacks are going to choke. And uh, the, the mental toughness, uh, the Australians have that. All the other countries cho have choked at one point or another in the past, and the Aussies don't. Mm. Um, so, uh, so I'm just going to go with that particular cliche. Um, France uh, will beat Namibia, certainly. Um, they've made cha 12 changes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, although, having said that, you were asking what, uh, about pre-match rituals yeah. there, the Hakka and stuff. One, um, the Fran France's pre-match ritual before the Argentina game was blamed in some quarters for their defeat because uh, Clément Poitrineau apparently um, got up and he read a famous letter by um, Guy Moquet, who was this 17-year-old um, res resistance fighter mm. who was... Um, shot by a firing squad in the uh, Second World War by the Nazis. Before and This was before the Argentina game. Before the Argentina game. game. He thought it would you know, rally the yes. posse, give them a bit of national pride and all, and all that. But it's a very sad letter. It's a letter that the 17-year-old guy wrote, wrote to his family before he was about to be shot. Oh so apparently the guys were all very solemn and weepy when they went out on the pitch. Didn't quite work. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Uh, more blog thoughts. This is uh, from Metatone who says, incidentally, Zinzanbrook wonders if the Northern Hemisphere players are just not in the groove yet. The only thing I can put my finger on, says Sinzan, for all the Northern Hemisphere teams is that they're only just starting their season, really. Surely they've been working through the off-season, they've had warm-up games, but they've been a bit forced. They wouldn't normally be playing in August. Um, do you think, Ian, there's a little bit of a disadvantage to be had to be Northern Hemisphere side? No, not at all, because if you... If, if you look at all the Northern Hemisphere side's best results against against New Zealand, against Australia, against South Africa, they tend to come in autumn internationals. And the excuse trotted out for that is always that, you know, it's the end of a long season for the Southern Hemisphere. It's the start of a season for the Northern Hemisphere and they're fresh and they're sharp. And there's very little evidence of that this time. But they should be. They, you know, they, they've had a proper summer's training. They should, they, they, they've had good warm-up games. They, they should be almost at their peak now. Do we not... I, come, sorry, Kevin, go on. Yeah, I'd, I'd normally agree with you there, Ian. I, and I think we... we uh, you know, Northern Hemisphere do have the, their best results uh, in the autumn series. But I, but I think that the Southern Hemisphere team's preparation, especially New Zealand and South Africa and probably Australia, uh, has been pretty much spot on. The South Africans uh, took their second-string sides away to save some of their players, uh, nearly all their players, in fact, um, I think they've uh, hit the ground running far more than the Northern Hemisphere teams. I think uh, we're, uh, the teams here are undercooked, basically. Um, you, you just look at the scores. I mean, uh, as you or someone was mentioning earlier, uh, the, the Minnows are, are posting some really good performances without winning, and yet the Northern Hemisphere teams are struggling to beat them, whereas the Southern Hemisphere teams are, are absolutely blowing them away. And I, I think that says it all in a way. I, I think the Southern Hemisphere teams are absolutely steaming at the moment. And um, teams from the North um, haven't really got into this tournament at all yet. Does the Northern Hemisphere as a whole just not treat sport seriously enough compared to the Southern Hemisphere? Is there some intrinsic difference in our attitude towards playing sport. We don't really see it as that important. In the end, it's just a game. Uh, that kind of attitude went out the door after a rugby turned professional, though. You know, We're still miles behind New Zealand and Australia, though, aren't we? Surely we should be up there now. Well, we are now, but four years ago we weren't. You know, England were well on top of them. It's, it's, it just doesn't work like that. It's, mm. it's all about professional preparation and... Some, yeah, get it, some get a lot lighter than others. Yeah. And what's strange is a lot of people have said, you know, because of all the handling errors made by the Northern Hemisphere teams, a lot of people have said, oh, they've concentrated too much on gym work and conditioning to the, to the detriment of basic skills. But what was really odd was that both Namibia and the USA finished stronger than um, Ireland and England in their games, which suggested that these part-timers were actually fitter as well.
Guardian Unlimited, the Rugby World Cup Show, sponsored by Magnus. I just want to pick up on one point that you made in your column, actually, Kevin, um, on Monday. Uh, the fact that Brian Lima could actually play again for Samoa on Sunday against Tonga, even though he was knocked out in the South Africa game. In boxing, of course, you have to wait, I think it's about 28 days before you can fight again. You were, uh, That's 48 bit, days, yeah. 48 days, right. Yeah. You were bit, uh, no, sorry, I beg you about 28 days. What am I talking about? Yeah, you're right, yeah. I read the column. Yeah. <laughs> you only you just wrote it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, no one remembers what they write. It's quite a serious point, isn't it? It is. Well, actually, as uh, Michael Jones, uh, who's a devout Christian, has uh, said today that he's not going to pick him because uh, he didn't want to risk him. He said he's only got two heads, uh, which will come as a surprise <laughs> to uh, people who have been marked out of the game by the um, the chiropractor in the past. But yeah, I think I think it's a mad anomaly that you can get not cold and. Um, you know, notionally be available for the next game. Uh, I just think it's wrong. And for all its faults, boxing does make an effort to take people out of the firing line when they get badly hurt. Maybe they don't even do enough then. But, uh, you know, I saw Lima flat out on the pitch on Sunday. Uh, it was of his own doing with a, with a silly tackle. But uh, nonetheless, he was still on Queer Street about uh, half an hour, 40 minutes later. Let me just throw something into the mix. While we're just thinking about the New Zealand game uh, coming up against Portugal, which everyone thinks is going to be an absolute annihilation, it may well be, and people are talking about risk of serious injury. While we're talking about that, boys, just consider this. Uh, the United States prop, uh, Mate Moakalila, plays for the Park City Haggis team. So we thought we'd have a look at some other unique names out there for Rugby Union too. So we've done some massive research on this. We've come up with the some great names here. Uh, the Missoula Maggots, they come from Montana in the US, but uh, the US is miles behind Australia in the race for the most ridiculous names. Uh, from the town of Vicentia, south of Sydney, come the Vicentia Van Goghs whose logo is a severed ear. <laughs> and from Byron Bay, you've got the Smoking Joints. And from Wagga City, which is pronounced Wagga City, come the Boiled Lollies. There was another guy in that USA team from the Gentleman of Aspen. And uh, I thought it would be good if, if they hooked up with one of the leading American uh, women teams, who are the Indianapolis Hoydens. And I had to look up Hoydens in the dictionary to and? see what it meant. And it means a high-spirited or saucy girl. Does it? Yes. The gentleman in the high spirit. And <laughs> the local derby does. against the absolute scumbags of Aspen, though, was a real New Zealand against Portugal. A total mismatch or the flavour of the World Cup encapsulated in a game? A um, bit of both, really. Um, I, I think last week in this podcast we talked about, the, you know, the inherent dangers of sending a Portuguese team out against these kind of ubermensch all blacks who would, you know, trample them into hospital. Um, actually, you, you looked at Scotland Port. Portugal, and although they got well beaten, the Portuguese can look after themselves. They're big, hefty lads. And I'm, I'm kind of less worried about them actually getting hurt now. Having said that, we had the rather bizarre spectacle of a New Zealand coach during the week promising to go a bit easy on them. Um, don't think it'll happen. No. But, uh, I don't think New Zealanders know the phrase, go the, easy, do the they? The charitable All Black side has yet to, be, yet to take but the field. their third, fourth 15 could put 60 points on Portugal, couldn't they? Well, Ken I see the Portuguese coach has uh, gone easy on New Zealand. He's uh, dropped nine of his players. So he's putting out his B-side against New Zealand. He's obviously, he obviously doesn't want to uh, do too much damage to the All Blacks. Or was that the B-side against Scotland? <laughs> well, maybe, maybe the, the, the theory was going, we were talking about this in one of the earlier um, podcasts previewing the whole of the, the tournament, and we said, Kevin, that uh, a lot of teams against the All Blacks will play a second team because they say there's no point in getting injuries and getting people... Um, out of the circulation when you've got more important games to come. So it's almost like saying, well, we've lost this game. Is that in the spirit of the World Cup? 
Well, I don't think so. But but I, I would just say this uh, from uh, talking to Brian Ashton the other day when asked about Delalio whether he was dropped. And he said, in World Cups, you don't drop players, you just change the team, which is a weird sort of euphemism. He was obviously dropped. But there is an element that you use the squad. I mean, if you've got 30 players, you, you know, you, you would shift them around a little bit. I think you should, in the main, though, try to put your, your best winning side out each time. And I think the squad should be, uh, for the fallback position of injuries or say, a lack of form or whatever, um, I, I don't I really don't think you can rotate a team during a, a seven-match tournament. I, I think that unhinges the side. And if you're confident in the quality of your players, you should play them all the way through as much as you can. I mean, last World Cup, Lawrence Delalio played every single second of England's campaign. If um, England's game against South Africa on Friday really was a must-win game that they were convinced they could win, I bet he wouldn't have played Farrell at fly half. I mean, if he's, in a way, he's nothing to lose against South Africa. The must-win game for England is against Samoa. So if he does well uh, at fly half against South Africa, say I'm a genius. If he doesn't, he got well. We had a depleted well, the, the squad. The difference is, if you don't win the group, you have a far more um, but difficult not, passage. Well, the point is, they're, they're recognising they won't beat South Africa either way. Do you agree well, with I that? Don't, I don't. I don't think you can possibly have that mindset. I, I know the logic of what you're saying, Ian. But if you if you go down that road of thinking, if they sit around a table, can you imagine this conversation? And uh, Brian Ashton uh, says to, to his uh, fellow selectors and senior players, you know, we're not going to win this one. Let's just uh, go with a flyer on Farrell. I don't think you, if you start that, I think you, you might as well you know, dip out of the tournament. I think also, it's, it's realistic. One, if I could just say on Farrell and Cat, I think they'll play 10 and they'll alternate 10 and 12. Farrell I think you're absolutely the, right. It's uh, a big risk. The captain of the, mm -hmm. of the defensive line and the th along the three quarters, I think he'll be. Uh, at 10 going forward and he'll slip to 12 when when, um, when the opposition have got the ball. I think that's the way they'll do it. And he's done that before as well. Uh, there's lots of kidology going on before the South Africa-England game on Friday. Jake White, the South African coach, thinks that England played badly against the United States on purpose. <laughs> yeah, it looked very deliberate, didn't it? <laughs> to lull them into a false sense. I think the one thing England are really good at is playing very, very badly as a Russ. You know, they, 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 they do it all the time. They've been doing it for four years now. So they've perfected yeah, I think the, the, other, the other thing about the England team is, is how much more have they got? I, I don't know how much more there is that we haven't seen. I think they're pretty near their maximum anyway. If anyone wants to join in, by the way, there's a good debate going on on the Guardian Unlimited site, which I've had a look at, and uh, there's some very strong opinion. Is this the worst England side ever? Let's ask two Irishmen. Ooh, no, the worst England side ever. I think I saw in the mid-'80s when they came to Dublin and got hockeyed by about 10 points. Um, there was the 87 World Cup side, of course, which in the possibly the most miserable match in World Cup history went out to Wales in the quarterfinals. Mm -hmm. um, I, think, I think that counts as the worst World Cup side. Right. Um, and I think a lot of the sides they had, you know, in the year after after winning the World Cup, once they'd lost Johnson, once they'd lost, you know, Leonard and a, and a few of those kind of real stalwarts, um, they, they were worse probably in the couple of years after 2003 than they are now. What's been so depressing, though, Paul, is the way that they haven't... The way they've gone backwards so markedly. Everyone could see this coming. There was no improvement at all. In fact, there was an absolute, you know, down the hill on the graph as far as England were concerned. And there, d there didn't seem to be anyone trying to, to 
to arrest the problem. They stayed with Andy Robinson for too long and it just became irrecoverable. I mean, I, I always like to try and find a positive in England performance. No, you like, like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm looking forward to a Paul Sackey playing. <laughs> There's nothing, nothing an Paul Irishman, Sackey. a, a Welshman or a last. Scotsman <laughs> likes more than laughing at England. I'll tell you what is pretty remarkable, though, that since the last World Cup, Johnny Wilkinson has been more or less constantly unfit, give, yeah. or, give or take a three or four month break where he suddenly you know, lurches onto the field before getting carted off again. In that time, they have failed to develop a single competent international class fly half, which is why we've now got either Andy Farrell or Mike Cat standing in the hole. Mm. And uh, on, on Friday, it's, it's, it's actually quite remarkable that given all the opportunities they've had, not one fly half has come out of England. I find Sorry, go on, Kevin. The one who has come out is, uh, is an Irishman called Shane Geraghty. Who, who should be in the squad is who had some uh, I saw him about four or five times for London Irish last year. He's a superb number ten, and uh, playing alongside Mike Cat as well. Um, he did well when he did get in the team too, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I don't know why he's not there. I think he's a superb player. He plays right on the gain line. He's as cool as as ice. He's uh you know he, he combines brilliantly with Cat. Cat's uh, sort of his mentor. Who's sort of uh, Guides him through through uh, through those games. I, I I don't know why he's not there. I, I think Toby Flood's a good player, and Charlie Hodgson obviously has got a, as much ability as 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 most fly halves in the game. I think hasn't Charlie but, Hodgson though? Doesn't he sort of sum up the the malaise of England? Just when you think Charlie Hodgson's going to be finally making the breakthrough, he he does something. Well, he doesn't kick well at the highest level. <laughs> Apparently, he, he was uh, quoted in the Manchester Evening News this week as saying that uh, notions that he was injured and unavailable were completely wrong, mm. uh, that he was fit, um, so you have to take uh, on face value. Um, but he obviously didn't have the games under his belt, so that's probably why he was left at home. I think the trouble with Hodgson is he has been tried and found wanting in far too many high-pressure situations. I think he's very much a confidence fly half, and when mm. a team isn't playing well, he's not the man you want in yeah. there because he, he is brittle in a bad team. He seems to want the arm around him too much. Absolutely. Right, OK. Uh, does anybody out of the boys think that England can beat South Africa? Paul and Ian? No. No. Kevin? Well, they can, but they won't. Uh, does anyone think Wales can beat Australia? Paul and Ian? No. Weirdly, yes. Kevin? Uh, uh, um, that's can, all you're allowed. They, Sorry? They can and they might do. Okay. Does anyone it would not surprise me if they do. Okay. Does anyone think Portugal will stop New Zealand getting 100 points? Ooh, I think New Zealand might stop at 98. Uh, well, they're two no. B teams, aren't they? So I think it'll be about 60 to 3 or something like that. Does anyone think Ireland can be worse than they were against Namibia against Georgia? Absolutely not. <laughs> No. Nope. <laughs> you certainly hope not. <laughs> Those are the fixes. Friday is England, South Africa. Saturday, Wales, Australia at 2 o'clock. Uh, these are all European times. New Zealand against Portugal midday. Ireland against Georgia at 8 o'clock. And then on Sunday, in England's group, it's Samoa against Tonga. Uh, Fiji play Canada. And France against Namibia. France will win comfortably. Will they not, boys? Oh, yeah, almost certainly. Oh, they have to, yeah. But they have to have a rollicking performance, otherwise they're, they're, they're dead in this World Cup. They've really got to show the, the French public have been pumped up enormously that they've got something left. Thank you very much to uh, all our contributors today. To Joel Stransky, who's off on the tour bus round Paris. I wonder where they are now. To uh, <laughs> the voice of our minute-by-minute match reports here at The Guardian on The Guardian Unlimited site, Paul Doyle, The Guardian's deputy sports editor, Ian Pryor, and Kevin Mitchell, chief sports writer for The Observer. I'm Ian Payne. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we'll have our next one at the end of the weekend when we look back at whether our predictions were right. And if you want to join in the debate, all you have to do is go to blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport. We look forward to hearing from you. Speak to you at the end of the weekend. You've been listening to the Rugby World Cup show. 
sponsored by Magnus. Time to play. Go to magnuscider.com. <laughs> 